a, it's a real pleasure to be back up here. Um, it's been a while since I've preached here um, through just different circumstances. I've had other guest speakers and other people, so it's been, um, it's been a while since I've been up here, so it's a real joy um, to be back with you again uh, this Sunday. So today, um, we're going to continue on in this series that we've been doing, which is called Deep Wells. And what this whole series is about is it's recognizing that often in life, we can have a bias to think that the way we do things now is the only way we can do them, right? The way we live, the way we think about church or faith, the way we interact with this world, we assume that now is just like, that's normal. We just live that way, right? And that's fine. We all have habits and patterns. But when it comes to faith, there's all, we should always be looking for more and more faithful and creative ways that we can live out the gospel, right? Because we do our best, but I don't know about you, but I often have this sense that you kind of wonder and you look around and be like, is this it? Could God not do something more in my life and in our lives? And so in this series, what we're doing is we're taking a moment to not just look at our current moment, but we're taking a moment to look back in history. Because one of the greatest things about being part of the church is that it's not just a now us thing, but we have thousands of years of saints and mentors who have gone before us who have responded to God in rad, radically crazy ways that would make us feel really uncomfortable right now. But they can also remind us about maybe the things that we assume are normal don't have to be. And maybe there are more faithful ways that we could live out our faith. Uh, Greg Sitzer, he has this quote that I think is just so helpful. He says, every generation of believers faces the risk of becoming prisoner to its own short-sighted vision of the Christian faith assuming that how it understands and practices faith is always the best. We run the risk of thinking what we're doing now is always the greatest. But what the greatest thing about history offers us is it gives us a chance to step out of our world and not just learn, but imagine how things could be different through other people who followed the same God that you and I do and the way they lived it out in their context. So we've looked at it, persecution. We've looked at uh, the community of the early church. We've looked at um, the desert fathers and mothers, those crazy radicals who left Rome to go live as hermits in the desert. We've looked at the risking missionaries last week. And so today we're gonna look at a different part of that movement. But as we do, let me pray. Jesus, as we gather together today, I pray that you would meet us so this becomes more than just a message, more than just stories, even more than just information or knowledge. But I pray that this will bring transformation. I pray that by your spirit, you will help us to imagine a different way to be, a more faithful way to follow you, and that your kingdom, more than anything, might take root in our lives in new and exciting and transformative ways. So Spirit, we invite you to speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, recently I came across a news story that made me like fall out of my seat both in shock and laughter. Famous car company, BMW, you guys know BMWs, right? Famous car company, BMW, has started offering a radical new product in some of their higher-end cars. In some of their higher-end cars, they have heating under the front seats so you don't get cold. But what was radical about this is that BMW has shifted to make this a subscription model. 
when you buy their car, you pay $15 a month for the access to use heated seats within your own car. Now, don't worry, that's a bit steep. You could buy a yearly subscription. That takes about 10% off the price. So, hey, if you're saving money, that's a good way to get in. Or there is an option for unlimited subscription, which is just an astronomical amount. By the way, they can take a little bit more money. Is that not crazy? What shocks me about that is that I was looking at that, and then out of curiosity, I went back and looked at old car commercials, and I found this old car commercial from the 1950s, and it was incredible. It was not sexy. There was no cars driving through the wilderness, no Jeep Jan Cherokees going up a mountain at 45 degrees, because that's what we all do most of the time, right? That's why we get our Jeeps. No, this ad was a guy who drove... He pulled into a petrol station, and then while he was in the petrol station, it was three minutes of him just talking to the camera, telling you why this will be the most reliable car you will ever buy, about how as a Cadillac, if you buy this Cadillac, you're never going to have to buy another car again. This Cadillac will serve you and your children. This is quality that will last. And I just couldn't get over how different the world has changed between those two advertisements. One was an age of stability. If you buy a product, we want it to last forever. Now we live in an age of change. No one buys a product for it to last forever. How many of you, I mean, some of you probably still have a fridge that was made in the 1940s that's still going strong, right? Like those things were built like tanks to keep going. Nowadays, if we get a phone, we're like, okay, cool. I'm going to drop $1,000, and if in two years it's still working, I've got a good deal. Right? That's crazy. It shows how fast this world is changing. There's a uh, Polish sociologist by the name of Zygmunt Bauman, which is just such a cool name. (laughs) Zygmunt Bauman. If you're going to be a smart academic, you need a name like Zygmunt Bauman. Zygmunt Bauman is this Polish sociologist who worked at the University of Leeds, and he developed this theory about how our world has changed. He talked about how we went from a, he called it solid modernity, the world where things were stable. There were institutions that you were a part of and you stayed a part of till you died. When you got a career, you were in that career from 18 till 65 when you retired. You didn't move, this was the community that you were a part of. The biggest companies were companies that built hardware, hardware, rail networks, infrastructure, gas, oil. But Zygmunt Bauman says that times have changed and we've moved from solid modernity where things are hard and concrete. He says we've moved into liquid modernity where everything is changing. Things are always moving. The biggest companies are not hard infrastructure companies, they're tech companies who offer software that changes every few weeks. They offer you phones that you renew every new year. And everything moves, and Zygmunt Bauman's point is that almost everything in our world has gone from being concrete and stable to being in flux. Bauman says, even in relationships, he says, in a liquid modern life, there are no permanent bonds. And any that we take up for a time, they must be tied loosely so that they can be untied again, as quickly and as effortlessly as possible. When circumstances change, as they surely will, in our liquid modern society over and over and over again. You can see this clearly in like, even the way we do relationships, the shift in dating culture 
from in the 50s, if you got, met someone, you married them early and then built a family with them. Where now we live in the age of Tinder and hookup culture. Why would you ever get married? That's a financial liability. You don't know what's gonna happen. If you're gonna marry this person, you're likely gonna lose half your assets. It is not worth the risk. Date them, find pleasure and joy and love with them. But when the time comes to move on, be as free as you can be to move on. Can you recognize that? We live in this liquid world where things are constantly changing and shifting. And one of Bauman's points is that for a few people, they're gonna love it. For a few people, they will be able to harness the chaos through sheer personality, will, and connections, and they're gonna make a truckload of money. You find a few entrepreneurs and a few companies that thrive and succeed. Even in relationships, you see a few people that have thousands of partners because they're good at it, they can harness the chaos. But what Bauman's point was, while a few will succeed, the vast majority are likely to get lost. They'll get left behind by the pace of change. And he says what will dawn will be an age of what he calls the age of anxiety. He wrote that back in 1999. So 20 years ago, sound like our world? The age of anxiety where there is nothing stable to hold on to. So the question is, if that's the world that we live in, how does that apply to us in terms of faith? How do we mature and grow in our faith in a liquid world where everything is changing? It becomes increasingly hard. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I've been watching and I've talked to other pastors, is lots of pastors have been talking about the crisis of discipleship and leadership. That churches, both Baptists, but also others, are struggling to find mature, discipled leaders. How do we form people who can carry the baton of faith, grow the mission and ministry of God? Because whenever we try, people move, they shift, and it's really hard for institutions to continue. And how do we do that in a liquid modern world? I was at a conference recently where I was asking this question. The whole conference was about discipleship. How do we do discipleship? And they had this speaker who was incredible, had all the best statistics, the best information, and he was able to perfectly describe the challenge of discipleship in a liquid world. He said all the problems, all the things, and I was like, great, I'm with you. And I was asking him, so I was like, so how do we do it? How, how, do, we, how do we do it? And I'll tell you what I heard because I walked away so disappointed. Throughout the course of that conference, the things that I heard were, we need to disciple our people. And I was like, yes. And they were like, but you can't just do it through preaching on Sundays. 40 minutes, half an hour, maybe an hour and a half, one half hours on a Sunday is not enough to disciple people for the mission of God. And I was like, okay, cool, I get that, I understand that. None of us grow through just this and that's it. There needs to be some other things. So then I was asking, okay, so what other things? So I was asking like, are there any programs or systems? And they're like, we don't wanna be a program-orientated church. Because programs can get really religious and dead and you just do the programs over and over again. What God is calling for us is, is greater than programs. We need to disciple our people. And I was like, okay, cool. Sundays don't work, programs don't work. And so I was like, okay. Um, how are you guys doing small groups? Like, are you doing small groups in a really creative way where people can disciple one another in small contexts? And he's like, look, to be honest, I don't think small groups work that great. Um, you know, often in small groups, people just kind of go around the circle. They don't really go deeper. And I think a lot of our small group models and structures are, you know, they need to be revamped. And I was like, cool. I literally left the conference and what I heard was, you need to disciple our people. And I was like, great, I'm with you. How do you do that? 
well, I, I know I can't use Sunday, I can't use programs, and I can't use small groups, but I need to do it. And the guy's like, yeah. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. This has been a great help. But does anyone, how do we mature in our faith? Often when we go to this challenge and we try to suggest practices, the thing I'm most common here is like, but we don't, we don't want to do practices or spiritual disciplines because that feels really religious. We don't want to be religious. We want to be relational. And I get that. But I also wonder whether that statement, if we want to be just relational, relational is also a reflection of our liquid life. That we don't want to be tied down to practices because that feels old and boring. But maybe, just maybe, the rediscovery of some of the rhythms that different movements throughout church history might help us actually create disciples. People filled and mature who know the love of God, who live out of that truth and are able to not just think about themselves but have capacity to love and serve others. There has been one movement that has defined this rhythmic structure throughout church history, and that is the monastic movement. I don't know if you know much about monks and nuns and monasteries. Sometimes in the evangelical tradition that we're a part of, we can often be like, oh, those are Catholics. Ignore them. Don't pay attention to them. But today, I want us to take a closer look at this monastic movement because I think they have a lot that we could learn from, mainly because the culture in which the, the monasteries arose was not that different from ours. The time of the peak monasteries came in a time in church history where it was in decline. So what had happened was Jesus lived, died. Church started as a small sect, right? And then grew rapidly. Over the first 300 years, Christianity went from being this small little Christian sect in Rome to, by the mid-300s, the dominant cultural force. Constantine converts, and suddenly Rome becomes a Christian empire. And everybody's like, yay, this is amazing. We did it. Except for they didn't. Because as soon as that happened, most of Christianity atrophied. It became about power, about position, about political gain, and the heart of Christianity began to corrupt. So then you get a few crazy people who got into the desert. Those are called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. We talked about them a few weeks ago. And they're nuts. They're crazy. They don't sound like much fun to be around, but they preserved the heart of faith, of radically walking towards Jesus. And they did this for a while, and they lived in their own little space while the Roman Empire continued to decline. Around the fourth, late 4th fourth century, Rome, at least in Italy, that western side of the empire, falls to the barbarians of the north. They come through and they sack Rome. They burn it to the ground, and effectively what was this dominant empire for hundreds and hundreds of years disappears. And what, is, what does it leave? A liquid, chaotic world in that region. There's no structures of support. There's no taxation systems. The roads, the roads are overcome by thieves and hordes, and, and people are left alone and terrified because there are no structures. Out of this movement... Out of this moment, that cultural moment of chaos and liquidity, a movement of monasteries of people who live their lives by rhythm and discipline arises to transform the face of Western Europe. I'm going to tell you three stories about how this got here and what that might mean for us. The first is a guy named Pacomius. Pacomius? I think it's Pacomius. I don't know. I read about all these things, but I never hear anyone describe it. So it could be Pachomius or Pachomius. I'm going to go with K, right? So you have Pachomius. He is a, uh, one of the desert fathers in Egypt. 
So he's a fascinating story. Roman soldier working for the Roman Empire. And while he's in Thebes working as a soldier, he meets Christians. And he is astounded by them because he found this Christian community that was doing more love, care, and service for the community than any he had ever seen before. And he couldn't figure out why they did it. And he was so moved. He said, when I finish my tour, I'm going to convert to Christianity. So he comes back and becomes a follower of Jesus. He stays a part of the church for a while, but then gets frustrated with its kind of corruption because that was happening. And he makes his way out into the desert and becomes one of these eccentric desert fathers out there. And he's utterly fascinating. So he trains there until one day God gives him a picture, a vision, where he tells him to serve mankind and prepare souls for the day when their father returns. And he gets this vision, because normally the desert people were all isolationists. They thought if you were around other people, you were weak. But Pacomius had this thing where he realized, actually, we need each other. And he starts to form the first earliest Christian monasteries in Egypt. And you know what? The first one fails spectacularly. They all get together. None of them get and get along. They angry. They fight. The most spiritual people in the world just cannot share a room, right? Which just makes me feel better about our humanity. And it falls apart. He tries again. The second time, it falls apart for the exact same reasons. And so then he tries a third time with the help of another monk. And they start to develop what, was, what will become to known as a rule of life, a pattern of living that all of these desert people will follow together. And it was structured around prayer and work and study. There'd be rhythms and moments in the day where they would all stop to pray together. They would read scripture and pray and encounter God. They would go out and work in the community, doing jobs to provide for things. And then in the evenings, they would gather around to pray, to listen to teaching, to learn from others, and it grows. I mean, they had two meals a day that were just like stewed vegetables, one piece of bread, and dried fruit. Sounds great, doesn't it? But what's shocking is, as you develop this rule, this rhythm, this structure for them, this community begins to thrive. And by the end of his life, he, had, he was watching over 7,000 different monks who had now formed into these communities around Egypt. And it begins to transform the face of the church. People hear about this thing about how people are living together and serving God of one another. And then you get this other, oh yeah, listen to this. This talks about the transformational power that people experienced. Uh, students of Pacomius talked about Pacomius and they said, we used to think that all the saints were made holy and unswerving by God without regard to their free will from their mother's womb and that sinners were not able to have life because they'd been created that way. But now we see the goodness of God manifested in our father, talking about Pacomius, who although born from pagan parents, has become so dear to God and has clothed himself with all of God's commandments. They were shocked that someone from this heathen background could so deeply experience the transformation of God to go from being heathen with no Christian understanding to someone cloaked with the commandments of God. And it blew their mind that that kind of transformation was possible. Genuine transformation. So then you get this guy named Basil. Now Basil hears about what's happening in Egypt and he ends up going down to check it out and he loves it. He falls in love with the way that Pacomius begins to gather these communities together and he starts to build something similar in his community up in Caesarea. But in Caesarea, he adds to it. And one of the things that he focuses on is he makes sure that those monks are working. 
Because those desert fathers, they were crazy, right? Genuinely, they were nuts and hyper-spiritual. Have you ever heard that phrase like, so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good? That characterizes the epitome of that movement. They're like, no, I can't work because I need to pray. No, you prepare the food for me because my job is in service to the spirit. You know, this was their life. And Basil realized that that could not stand. That actually work, daily work in service of others was one of the ways that God forms us. It's one of the key instruments that he uses to transform our lives. And listen to this. This is him calling out his brothers who didn't like it. He says, this is Basil, we must not treat the ideal of piety as an excuse for idleness or a means of escaping toil, which means you don't get to use spirituality to be lazy and sit on your butt all day. That is not the way of Jesus. It is God's will that we should nourish the hungry, give thirsty to drink, and clothe the naked. And so Basil begins to form some monastic communities built around a rule of life, prayer, scheduled moments of prayer, scheduled moments of fasting, times for work in the community, and he begins to preach like his life is on fire. Incredible sermons. Sermons talking about warning about the exploitation of the poor, Warning about how the rich can't just keep taking more. They have a duty to care for those underneath them. Challenging some of the the edges of slavery, which at that time was very radical. And not only that, with his monasteries that he oversaw, he pushed them to become places of service to the community. They became hospitals for those with infectious diseases. They became uh, producers of agriculture and food, of which they gave away a significant portion. Remember, because they were eating just stewed vegetables and dried fruit. So the extra that they had, they were giving away to the community so that no one was hungry. By the end of Basil's term, you basically had an entire social safety net that had been built up around the city of Caesarea, mostly because of these monastic movements who took the time and the discipline to gather their day around prayer, work, and life with one another. And it becomes this, honestly, this moment of hope for the wider community of Caesarea. And then you get the crowning achievement, the peak of this monastic movement in the form of a monk named Benedict of Nursia. Has anyone heard of the name Benedict before? Beyond just Pope Benedict. Benedict of Nursia ends up becoming the father of the Benedictine order of monks. And he ends up writing this piece of literature called um, it's Benedictus Rule of Life. It's 72 chapters of how to live in faith and community in the way of Jesus. And this document, honestly, is one of the most important documents in Western civilization. It has formed so much of our thinking and our structures, and it changed the way that the world worked. And one of the things that Benedict did that was interesting is he took Pacomius's model of prayer and he added in Basil's focus on work and he began to write a rule that made that happen but he also added one more vow which was again revolutionary at the time he added in a vow of stability when people joined the Benedictine order they didn't just commit to obedience to follow the way of the monks they also committed to that people and to that place, to live out their days in that space, serving God and serving that community. Now, does that give anyone else the heebie-jeebies, just the thought of it? 
Imagine coming to church and being like, welcome to Golden Sands. To become a member, you must vow to never leave. <laughs> right? That freak, that's like something internally is like, no, you can't chain me down, man. Don't chain me down. But Benedict's idea, which was so fascinating, is he believed that one of the calls of this, this movement was to form people in the way of Jesus. We wanted, he wanted to create matured disciples. And he saw a risk that if there was no stability within this Benedictine order of monks, you could get monks chopping and changing all over the place. When you got a good leader in a good monastery and your leader at your monastery is sucky, you'd be like, man, that is the up and coming leader of that monastery. I want to go to that one. I want to move up within this movement. He saw this risk that we would, his monks would avoid the deep work of discipleship in order for the pride of opportunity. Now, how crazy is that? Just imagine from an organizational perspective. Think about it as if you're an organizational leader. He basically made a choice to stunt his organizational growth in order to caretake the spiritual maturity of the people within it. How many leaders would do that this day? Well, it's growth at all costs sometimes, isn't it? Um, uh, these two authors who wrote in their kind of biography on the rule of St. Benedict, they said this, Benedict had brought mobility, the physical expression of a man's pride, independence and self-will under the healing influence of obedience. The course of perfection, as Benedict saw it, could only be completed successfully if self-will were annihilated and replaced by the divine will. To this end, stability proved a remarkably effective means. By keeping people in the same place, it allowed them to let go of their own will and take on God's will for their life. Now, if you're a normal person, you should feel at least a little bit uncomfortable with that and be like, I don't know, that sounds a bit too intense. I get it. I feel that. But it's worth noting the significant effect that these Benedictine monasteries had because they rose to prominence right as Rome fell. Remember a chaotic, lawless, liquid world that they lived in. And these monasteries became shining moments and places of light and hope in a very scary time and place. They became centers for mission and evangelism. Want to know how? Because these monks would go and commit to a region where the, there really is no Christian influence. That happened in England, that happened in France, that happened in Germany. They would go and pick regions far from anywhere else. And because of their vow of stability, they would commit to that place they would learn the language. Because of their commitment to work, they would set up shops, they would set up businesses and trades. If any of you like beer, the Benedictines are basically single-handed responsibly for bringing down the tradition of beer through Western Europe. Not so that they could get plastered, but because it was a nutritious drink when water wasn't freely available. And they began to serve the needs of their community. They learned the language and little by little, they began to tell the local people about the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And people were moved and huge numbers converted because of these local centers of mission of people who were stable and built their lives around the practices of Jesus. Also, most they became huge centers of education and knowledge. Most of the manuscripts that we have of the New and the Old Testament copied by monks who carefully spent day after day retranscribing painfully letter after letter to make sure that the words of God could be given to a future generation. Incredible. 
learning, knowledge, uh, economic growth, and mission all came through these spaces through people who built rhythm and discipline into their life, who believed that the call of God was all-encompassing, and in a chaotic world believed that stability had something to offer. We wouldn't be where we are. Christian faith would not be where it is without the influence of these crazy monks and sisters who lived in community to follow the way of Jesus. Rhythm is an incredibly important part of our faith. I mean, you see that throughout scripture. How does Genesis start? Through God setting the structure of a week. Six days you should work and one day you should rest. When Israel became a nation and they go on Mount Sinai and it's all those chapters in the Bible that we don't like to read because they're long and confusing. But in those chapters, it talks about regular feasts that they gather around. Multiple times a year, they will cease their work and they will gather together in Jerusalem to remember what God has done. Through the feasts of tabernacles and atonement and Pentecost where they celebrate harvest and fruit and atonement where they recognize that God's forgiveness of sins is given freely to them. He structured their lives. The church itself, the early church, gathered in a daily rhythm where before dawn they would gather to pray. Before dawn, by the way, not 10 a.m. Before dawn they would gather to pray. Then they would do a full day's work because most of them didn't get a day off. And then they would gather in the evening to share a meal together and listen to the scriptures and worship God. They had developed these rhythms and these structures. And you can see that in the writings of Paul. This is one of Paul's most favorite metaphors where he says, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You can hear in Paul that same fear for Benedict. What, the, what comes at risk if we run for the organization and neglect our own personal faithfulness to Jesus? There's a great story illustrating this. There's a pastor in the UK and his daughter was really into ballet loved dance and loved ballet. And he was a church planner, and so he would often, he was flexible enough to take her there for her lessons. And then this ballet teacher said, hey, your daughter's really good. She's really good. She's got a lot of promise. We would love to invite her on to the next step. We've got a, a much more advanced course that we run on Sunday mornings, and we would love for your daughter to come and join us because we think she, she's got a lot to give in this space. And he, was, he wrestled, and he was like, oh, Sunday mornings, this is the time our, our church community gathers together. This is when we grow her spiritually and her faith. And they talked about it with the daughter. The dad talked with his daughter, and they decided, nah, they'd rather prioritize this. And when they went to go tell the ballet teacher, she was shocked. She couldn't believe it. She was like, wait, but that doesn't make any sense. God is everywhere. What? It's just a Sunday morning. Like, you can follow God at any point in time in any place. Hear that liquid language? It's flexible. You can do that anywhere. But if you really want to grow as a ballerina, you can get God anywhere. But if you want to grow as a dancer, you've got to be here. You've got to commit. You've got to take the time to do the work. You've got to do the lessons. You've got to practice. You have to be here with other dancers. And slowly, little by little, you will grow as a dancer. 
And this dad looked back at the ballerina teacher and he said, no, I, I, I know, you're exactly right. I just believe the exact same thing is true about her spiritual development. If I want her to grow, if I want her to mature, it doesn't just happen by magic. It doesn't just happen as if it comes through the air. It takes hard work. It takes discipline. It takes structure. And if you're any musicians in the room, if you're not an athlete, and this is one of the things I've found to be so true for music. Often when I started music, I just assumed there were some people who were just so naturally gifted. They just picked it up and it's like, oh, this is easy. I can do it. Truth be told, most of those people put in hours and hours and hours. And the only place that I've gotten today with what I can do on music, I hated singing. An awful singer. Never sung before my life before I was 19. The only reason I got singing, how? Because I had to flip and do it a lot. And I was really bad for a really long time. And then I got mediocre, right? Same for guitar. I just took hours and hours of playing really bad cowboy chords before you could play anything that was nice. Drumming. Oh, the churches in Mexico were so gracious to me. I learned how to drum in little churches in Mexico where I was miserable. But it takes discipline, time, and effort. As we wrap up today, what I want to land is often in our liquid world, I think we sometimes get drawn into the idea that spiritual growth and maturity will just happen. As you grow up, yeah, it'll happen. You'll mature. You'll follow the way of Jesus. You'll figure it out. But I think... What the monks would remind us, what Paul would remind us, is that there are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. In the same way with our faith, there are no short, quick pathways, one quick moments where you pray and suddenly you're an incredibly mature leader ready to serve God in lots of different places. It takes time, structure, patterns, hard work. But what I love about this and what I want to encourage you today with is that in a time of chaos, when the Roman Empire had fallen and there was anxiety and fear running rampant, it was through a local community of believers who practiced the way of Jesus in very, very simple ways that transformed a whole nation, regions for the gospel. And I believe that today, in a liquid modern world where anxiety reigns supreme and where we are struggling to find leaders to lead the church in this next season, there could be something incredibly prophetic about a group of local believers disciplining themselves to follow the way of Jesus in really simple ways. So how can we do that? It's not sexy. Pray. And if you don't have time in your day, get up to pray. And if you're too tired in the mornings, go to sleep earlier. Get up to pray. And when you pray, build in a structure so you don't just pray for yourself. I'm terrible at this. When I get up to pray, there's so many things about the church in my life that I'm like, oh God, this is hard and this is terrible. And then I look and times can go by and I haven't prayed for a single other person. I build structures into my systems now where I've got a section in my journaling stages where it's like, pray for other people. And I have to stop praying for myself and thinking about myself and pray for other people. Read the Bible. It's 
Again, this is not rocket science. But the people in our church, and I've talked to them, those that I know that I can see the maturity and the love of God, I often hear from them about where they are up in their Bible readings in this time of the year. He's going to hate it, but I was talking with Richard the other day about how he's making his way through the prophets, and it's a bore. But he's reading. Pray. Read. Gather with other believers and walk with them. The desert fathers and mothers were useless until they could find a way to love one another. Consider Sunday mornings part of your spiritual disciplines, the way that you get formed in the way of Jesus. Consider your small group, your connect group, a spiritual discipline. I'm going to discipline myself by showing up there even though I don't want to and I'm tired and there's lots of other things I could do with my week. I'm going to be there because God is going to form me through it. And I believe that if we can hold on to these basic things, as we've learned from history, God can do incredible things. I believe that God wants to raise up new leaders for this next generation. For our church, we desperately need to be able to pass the baton of leadership from those who've been formed through those practices to younger people. To the youth in our community, you need to start forming yourself in the way of Jesus because you are the leader for the church, not tomorrow, but today. We need you on this journey. To the parents of families, I know it's busy. I know. I live that life. But passing on our faith is too important to leave it up to chance. Making sure that my kids and your kids know that God loves them live in the security that God has moved heaven and earth to draw them to himself and that there is a community of faith here that love and support them. That is far too important to leave up to the liquid world to achieve. We need to take ownership of that. Find ways to pass on faith to our kids and to our grandkids so that God can raise up leaders amongst us and he can grow our capacity. The monks only had the ability to serve their neighbors because they had done the disciplined work of building up those assets and resources, and then they had capacity to love to give. So what does that look like for you? Actually, just closed. Um, can the slides, can you move on to the next slide? There's one more with some questions on it. There's two questions that I want you to reflect on as we sing this final song. How are you building rhythms into your life to develop spiritual maturity within you. It doesn't have to be huge. Honestly, if it's five minutes to start with, take that five minutes. If, as a parent, the only time you get is when you're sitting on the loo and they don't knock on the door, take that time. God can use those small things to do something profound. How are you building rhythms into your life to develop spiritual maturity? How are you disciplining yourself like Paul had asked? And secondly, I want us to dream, continue to dream. If we only think about ourselves, this church will only ever be about us. But when we discipline ourselves to live in the love of God, then God grows our capacity to give outwards. And I want us to always be dreaming, how can our faith outwork into blessings for the wider community? How can we give more? How can we love more? How can we serve more? Because we live in an age of anxiety and a community of stability and faith could be a prophetic witness of hope and life in the kingdom of God. You hear that? Let me pray.
Jesus, we live in a time when discipline is a dirty word. We live in a culture where we are taught to always just follow our dreams and our passions above anything else. We also live in an age of anxiety, of instability, of change, and so many people are getting left behind, feel like they can't keep up no matter how hard they try. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come and speak to us today. This week, I have been challenged by this word in thinking through how I will build in rhythms to grow my faith and the faith of my family in this church. Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us today. Not with condemnation. I just wanna speak against condemnation in Jesus' name, that no one here would feel a sense of guilt or shame because they haven't done enough. That's not, that's not what you're here to do. Instead, I pray that you would bring a sense of inspiration of what could be, a vision of what our lives could look like with you. And Lord, if there are patterns and rhythms that we could build into our life. I pray that you'd speak to us about those now. Can I encourage you just to take a moment to listen and wait on God and just see if there's anything he might want to say. God, is there anything you would have us do to build some rhythm or some discipline in our spiritual walk of life. Whether that's through carving out time for prayer, for reading of your scripture, for reading of other books or, or learning from other teachers who can help us on that journey, from committing to a, a small group, a formation community to go deeper in our faith, to taking our kids out, on regular moments to talk to them about God and faith in their lives. I pray that you'd speak to us, Holy Spirit. And God, I want to pray a prayer of faith over our community and over your church across this nation. Lord, I pray that you would develop within us the rhythms and the structures to produce leaders for your church. God, I pray that you would develop rhythms and structures within us so that we would stop becoming so self-centered and self-focused and we would have the capacity and the ability and the finances and the generosity to start loving others without any sense of return. I pray that you would transform our church here at Golden Sands into a giving church where we give to things outside of us, things that we may never ever see the growth from, but we invest in those places. God, I pray that you would be raising up leaders for our church. Pray for young people that you would be shoulder tapping them with a divine call to serve your church in the same way you did Pacomius, to serve mankind and to prepare people for your return. Lord, would you raise up leaders amongst us, I pray.
Would you develop mature disciples amongst us? And would you turn us here in Papamoa with the other churches in the region into outposts of stability, love, and service to our community? That we would be known for the way that we love, for the way that we give, and for the way that we care for others. Lord, we long to be that sort of people. Would you form it within us? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Can I encourage you, if you felt like God spoke anything to you, if you felt like God gave you any ideas or ways that you could build some structure, some rhythm, some intentionality into your spiritual walk, before you get up, could I encourage you to write that down? Because if you're anything like me, you're like, that was really good. And then you get out and you eat lunch and you're like, wait, what happened? Don't rush. Take a moment, write it down in your phone. Tell your partner or your spouse what God might have been saying to you or tell someone near you. Because I believe through small steps of obedience, normal people, just like those monasteries, none of them were fancy, normal broken people, God can transform the world just need to be with Jesus to do it.